KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Brian Seltzer, and this is the story of a Philadelphia treasure you should know more about. Broad Street's got a rhythm, it's got a beat. There's the steady stream of cars, buses chugging along, horns honking in frustration. You've got the orange line humming beneath your feet. And of course, the new construction never stops. It's a rhythm that's easy to get lost in while you're driving along or just walking down the street, so much that you could lose track of your surroundings. Take Broad and Fitzwater, for instance. There's a good chance you've never noticed this very parochial-looking building on the west side of the block. And why would you? Because from the outside, there's nothing special about it. It's got a limestone base, brick facade, red doors. Very plain, very ordinary. And it's a real shame because inside Tinley Temple United Methodist Church, you've got this incredibly rich living history. History this city should be proud of and celebrate and pump up and get to know more about. Tinley's named after the Prince of Preachers, the Godfather of Gospel, Dr. Charles A. Tinley, the guy whose lyrics inspired We Shall Overcome, the anthem, of course, of the Civil Rights Movement. And just like Broad Street itself, Tinley Methodist has a sound all its own. Walking to Tinley Temple and the vibes grab you right away. It's like you're walking into the Palestra, the Academy of Music. You just know you're somewhere special. You can feel it. In its heyday, Tinley Temple had three services on Sundays and 10,000 members. This is, uh, this is pretty amazing just looking around. <laughs> First, welcome to Tinley Temple. Um, this uh, sanctuary was, was, was built uh, in, in, the 19, in the 1900s. This is the Reverend Robert L. Johnson. He's Tinley's pastor and started going to Tinley when he was a kid. The current sanctuary seats 3,200. And everything in the building is original to the building, except for the, um, the, the electronics that we've had to do. Um, but this is the original building. This is the original spot. This was the place where uh, Marion Anderson's mother used to attend. And Marion Anderson has, had sung here at some point. We've had dignitaries such as uh, Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders. Um, we have had people come through, uh, politicians. This was the Mecca. This was the place where um, everybody who wanted to come to the city came to Tinley Temple at that time. Back in those days, Tinley opened its doors to everyone. The architecture and design was purposeful. It was meant to make everyone feel welcome. The first thing we got to understand is getting the mind of Dr. Tinley. Dr. Tenley valued this place as, if you look at it, Noah's Ark. Because the church was supposed to be the Ark of Safety. And so if you look at it uh, with the windows on the top, they're letting so much natural light. There's not a piece of metal up there. They're all wooden beams. And just imagine that you're in this Ark, this ship, this, this place that all encompasses you like, like, like it did Noah. The stained glass windows that, that surround the whole building, top level and lower level. 
surround you with the story, the biblical stories of our time. And then if you look up at the balcony, you'll see these wooden chairs handcrafted on South Street. And each member of the church brought a chair. And before there were pews on the floor, the chairs were put on the floor for the pews. And that's because they needed to be able to clear the floor of the church every night so people could sleep there, because Tinley was a stop where black people would come during the Great Migration from the south to the north that started in the early 1900s. So yeah, people would sleep on the floor of the church, the same floor that's still there today, until they either found another place to go or moved on somewhere else. Another thing that stood out about the design of Tinley, the interior looks like an old school theater. Think the tower or the Met. Big floor with a balcony that kind of wraps around. Reverend Johnson says the church was made this way because if it ultimately needed to be converted and sold, it could. No one thought a black church with 10,000 members could last. Everything that you look at, you're looking at living history here. We have always had a, a proudness about not modifying the building to the point in which it loses its historical standing. And we are a historical church on the National Registry as well as the Pennsylvania Registry. We are a national, we are a national monument uh, right here at Sunny Temple. So when you look at this building, you see a 90-something-year-old building. And I think she looks pretty good to be 90-something years old. She sounds good, too. For as much as the wooden ceiling beams and handcrafted chairs are part of Tinley's physical identity, a molar organ is the defining trait of its sonic identity. Here, give it a listen. of the console is Tinley Temple's Minister of Music, Theodore Thomas. This organ is huge. It's massive. It was built in 1926. It has four sections all throughout different parts of the sanctuary. The biggest one is right behind the main pulpit, the facade, and it's got about a thousand pipes. It was once the second biggest organ in the city behind the one in the Wanamaker building, now Macy's. So I have to go check it out. I need to see it. I make Reverend Johnson take me upstairs. Yeah, that's right. These are uh, some legit steps. You tell it. <laughs> when I was a kid, I could run up and down these steps like it was nothing. Now I'm in, I'm in my 50s. I'm running, but not that fast. I feel like you handled it pretty good right there. <laughs> the console, the keyboard of the organ, is on a platform in the first row, right in the middle of the balcony. So what you're looking at is you're looking at a four manual molar organ built by the Mola Company. What makes this organ unique is that the organ sits in the middle and the whole instrument surrounds the organ. It is really a magnificent piece of work that just went through a restoration. It cost Tinley over a million dollars to restore the organ. A couple donors pitched in and it was something they felt was worth it because that Mola organ is such a huge part of the church's identity. It's a point of pride. Theodore Thomas even went as far as to call it a blessing. Reverend Johnson says that when Thomas gets the organ cranking and the choir is doing its thing, the feeling inside the sanctuary is indescribable, that it brings tears to your eyes. To hear him play um, some of the traditional uh, stuff on the pipe organ, I mean, there's stuff that he can do on this pipe organ that makes the whole room shake. 
And then you have the state trumpets that'll just blow you out of here. But just imagine Christmas and Easter and high days like that where you have this pipe organ and full-throated singing. It's the nearest thing you're gonna get to heaven on earth. So you've got this church with all this history that, like Reverend Johnson says, everyone during normal times would want to visit when they come through town. But membership's been on the decline. The neighborhood the church serves is a shell of its original self because of gentrification. Johnson says his community is hurting. So what's a pastor like him to do? It's a blessing and a curse. Johnson grew up in southwest Philadelphia. He started going to church at Tinley when he was eight years old. He was part of the youth choir. He never, ever thought he'd be pastor here one day. We're sitting in the first row of pews talking about what it's like for him to be just the second ever homegrown pastor in the 185-year history of his church. The reason why I say it's a blessing is because it's always good to be at the place where you got your start. And, you know, after 40-some years of being uh, away, you know, for me to be appointed here as pastor was just something that was just um, a high honor. But it is also something that with the changing landscape of the city and the changing landscape of church has presented with me with some unique challenges. Care to elaborate on that more a little bit, just some of the the dynamics of the landscape and and some of the things that you've had to confront and, and deal with? Well, I think I think I think the one thing that we had to confront the most here is how do we survive with a footprint this big and a dwindling congregation? And by footprint, you mean the actual the architectural actual architectural footprint. footprint and and dealing with gentrification and on a monthly basis, having people call and asking you, are you ready to sell? Are you ready to sell? Are you ready to sell? Uh, and the answer is always no. And having those pressures, uh, both within and without, I like to say that I'm the pastor that got his foot in the door that refuses to allow the, allow the doors to be closed because we still have a lot more ministry left to do. I was sent here to kind of look, survey, and give a new vision. Where can we be in, in a changing landscape? It depends on the pastor and the willingness of the people to survive in their own space. Tenley Temple is a place where if you can make the alliances in the neighborhood and in the community, this can be the place where the church gets back to be the hub of a new community. That's exactly what the church's role was in the 1920s and 30s under the leadership of Dr. Charles A. Tinley. Tinley was born in the 1850s and raised on the eastern shore of Maryland in a town called East Berlin. His mother was free. His father was a slave. The family came north to Philadelphia after the Civil War. From what I understand, Dr. Tenley was a janitor, taught himself to read, taught himself to write, no really formal education. Dr. Tenley took classes and was appointed here. And when I say appointed, the bishop made the appointment to Calvary, Calvary United Methodist Church. And that was on Bainbridge Street. So we went from Bainbridge Street, what they call Bainbridge Street United Methodist Church, to Calvary. Then they changed their name to East Calvary. Well, what happened was between Bainbridge Street and East Calvary, 
he would walk around the city, go into bars and, and solicit people to come to church. And during that time, you know, people were like, okay, sure. And he would work with the, the, the wives and they would drag their husbands. And before you know it, he would use his East Berlin roots to get the people who've already come up here <laughs> to come to church because he knew the culture. And so all of a sudden people began to tell people, hey, you need to come to see uh, Charles Tenley. You need to come see Charles Tenley. He's really preaching. And there was no pipe organ back then. So what he had was a brand of music that was foot stomping, hand clapping, down home church. And before you knew it, they were looking for another building because they had all grown where they were on Bainbridge Street. Hence, they found an old Presbyterian church right here at Broad and Fitzwater. That is where the first church was, right next to this building. Before you knew it, they outgrew that and they acquired this property. And he had a vision. The original name of this church was East Calvary Methodist Episcopal Church. It was only after three services, 10,000 people, that they decided to honor him and name it Tenley Temple. When the success of this church began to be seen by those who, in the conference level and others, you know, they began to scratch their head and wonder how a man with no formal education can take a church and make it to over 10,000 people. And how long did it take? How did he do it and how long did it take? Do you have a sense? Well, how he did it, how he did it was he networked. He was a people person. Dr. Tenley could walk up Broad Street and everybody knew his name. They, know, they all knew Dr. Tenley. The shop owners knew Dr. Tenley. The bar owners knew Dr. Tenley. Families knew Dr. Tenley. Dr. Tenley would be all around his neighborhood. And so back in, in the early 1900s, Dr. Tenley was, was, was a fixture here in South Philadelphia. This was the place. It was the largest church you had in the area. Old Delaware Conference used to come here to have their conferences. The AME Church used this place to have its conferences. And so this was the Mecca. This was the place. And Dr. Tenley was just a guy who just said, the doors of the church are open, come on in. And then what about the music part? Do you have any idea how he learned music or you when know, and how music came into his life? This is going to sound strange, but Dr. Tenley learned music through bar tunes. He would listen to the to, to outside the bars and hear the, the piano player in the bar tunes. And then he would sit down in this place, in this building right now, his original office is left untouched, untouched. Only thing that's in there that's been touched is a, is a case with some of his original music. But he used to sit there in that office and used to write down from his experience and put it to, and his wife would, his late wife would, would do the crossing out and the, and the changing of the lyrics. And he self-taught himself how to play the piano. And that's how he did. All right, so I have to check out this office. A little while later, Reverend Johnson and I get up, we walk to a back corner of the church and we take a peek through the set of wooden double doors. They're locked, but they have a couple oval-shaped windows you can see through and look into what's maybe a 10 by 10 sized room where Dr. Charles Tinley wrote all his music. And I know I can't get in this one. I know I couldn't. Wait, can I? Can I? No, I think I just bolted on the other. But that's his original office. This is Dr. Tinley's original office. Uh, from, the, from the lamp, from the lanterns, to his picture above, to the original desk. 
Um, and if you look real hard, uh, that is his original glasses. That's his original eyeglasses. And so this used to be the study where he used to come in. And beyond that door where the desk is, that this was his public office, but beyond the desk was his private office. I tell you, I don't even have a key. <laughs> but that's Dr. Tenley. Now, if you, if you look, you see that picture of the church. Tinley wrote over 60 hymns, and Reverend Johnson explained to me why they eventually took off. By and by. That's number one. By and by. Leave it there. Beams of heaven. I'll overcome someday. What are they doing in heaven today? I mean, I mean, the list goes on and on. He wrote over 60 hymns. Incredible. When did these songs start to really take off and get popularized? How was his catalog spread around? Believe it or not, um, it started down south. People from the, the north here were taking his music down south. <laughs> so you got Eastern Shore, Maryland, they're singing by and by when the morning comes. And people are like, well, where did you get that tune from? Well, that's a Dr. Tenley tune. Now, the music to by and by, the original by and by, is a blues tune. So he took popular uh, music, blues, and, and popular bar tunes, put Christian lyrics to them so people could follow them because they're popular, they're popular tunes. That's why they call him the godfather of gospel music. So about 60 songs in his catalog, about how many would you say are still in the canon of gospel music today? Oh man, a lot. I mean, I mean, a lot. I mean, they're always being redone. Their stuff, uh, contemporary gospel artists are doing, are doing Tenley tunes. I heard um, Leave It There, and there was a rap in the middle of it. And I'm like, these kids don't even know. And when I looked at the CD, all the way at the bottom, it said uh, C.A. Tenley, and I just had to smile. It's telling that when you go and search for any of Tinley's well-known hymns on YouTube and you see modern interpretations of his songs being played, you pull up these videos and you see black churches performing his material, white mixed-race churches doing the same. They're all into it. Race, age, gender, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. For the African-American experience, music is the setup, if you will, for the whole worship experience. I mean, you walk into a church that's got good music and good singing. It just, for, for us, it just, all you've been through through the week, the music takes you to a different place. Music is the place where you can stomp your feet and clap your hands and act crazy and, and be caught up in the spirit and know that you have been uh, lifted beyond what your daily, your, your weekly uh, situation is. Your yearly situation. Your yearly situation, especially like during this the couple of years we've had. We walk in here with 60, 70 people sitting here because everybody's not back yet. And we're singing a hymn and tears are starting to flow. You know, there's, there's songs like that'll have you rocking, but then there's, there's songs with folk are crying because all of a sudden they really understand that God has really brought them a mighty long way.
when you think about prominent, powerful hymns, hymns with significance in the black church, We Shall Overcome is one of the biggest, and it's got its origins in Charles Tinley's music. So in We Shall Overcome, take the part that everyone knows. We shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. Now, let's go to a section of I'll Overcome Someday, Tinley's song. Tinley Church Minister of Music, Theodore Thomas, reads the lyrics to me, and then he plays the song on the organ. The song I'll Overcome Someday. The lyrics are, This world is one great battlefield with forces all array. If in my heart I do not yield, I'll overcome someday. I'll overcome someday. I'll overcome someday. If in my heart I do not yield, I'll overcome someday. And this is the tune. is obviously way different, but when you look at the words, you can definitely see that the idea of We Shall Overcome has roots in Tinley's I'll Overcome Someday. Reverend Robert Johnson says it took time for this connection to be made publicly. It wasn't until the 70s and the 80s that somebody said, hey, hold up, Uh uh-uh, that's not yours, that belongs to Charles Tenley. Then that's when he slowly got the notoriety, Dr. Tenley slowly got the notoriety of, this is his lyrics, this is his song. Johnson says that as the story goes, during a famed visit that Martin Luther King Jr. made to Barrett Jr. High School down at 15th and Wharton in the fall of 1967, Martin Luther King mentioned Charles Tinley by name in association with We Shall Overcome. I think that was the first time publicly that his name was mentioned publicly by a leader of the civil rights movement in a song. Hmm. And then it just took off? It just took off, but still today people don't understand, they don't make the correlation. Today they still don't make the correlation. They really think that that's, that's somebody just made that song up and it's not taken from uh, uh, any place else. Just kind of like an or- organic, traditional just kind hymn? Of, yes, just like, or, you know, we've been singing it for so long, we just think that it's just came out of nowhere, you know? Somebody sat at their kitchen table and wrote it out, you know? On the surface, it would seem like the message of that hymn still holds very true and is very necessary to this day. Has it changed over time for you? Does the meaning ring true? Has it changed? Does it take on extra significance? How would you put it in terms of what black people are dealing with today? Well, I think it's it's nostalgia. I think that it is a message for some of my younger people 
they keep on singing, we keep singing, we shall overcome and we ain't overcame yet. <laughs> you know, um, especially with everything that's happened in the course of the couple of years that we've had with, you know, police shootings and stuff like that and protest and, and everything else. For me, being a child of the 60s and being a student of, of history, understanding that we shall overcome represents for me, for just for me, a time to say, we're not there yet, but we're marching forward. And to, and to get my younger, to get my children and to get my nieces and nephews to understand that it's just not a song, it's a symbol of a movement that is ongoing. Not something that we, we, we did back when Dr. King died. You know, when Dr. King died in 68, the movement didn't stop. We just need to take the movement a little bit further. In some ways, I guess it's cool for someone who does know who he is to see that he's still having an influence. But the other part of it is, how do you make sure people don't forget him, right? Well, I think, I think, that's, the, I think that's the challenge. I, I, and I think that's our challenge as a church. That's our challenge as, as the keeper, if you will, of the legacy of Dr. Tenley. Our um, job, as far as I see, is to make sure that Dr. Tony doesn't get forgotten. It's, it's amazing to me that we're sitting here in Philadelphia on the Avenue of the Arts and on the Philadelphia Walk of Fame, he doesn't have a plaque. How's that possible? In the Philadelphia Walk of Fame, there's not a plaque to Charles A. Tenley. That's incredible. Isn't it? It is. But you know who that's on? That's on us at the church. The blessing and the curse thing, right? The blessing and the curse. We need to be advocating for his legacy. Reverend Johnson talked about this earlier. The black community in general, but specifically here in Philadelphia, has had to go through so much the last few years. Coronavirus obviously has affected everyone, but there was also the murder of George Floyd, the protests for racial justice. Then there's the city's crisis with gun violence. What's on your mind as you think about what to tell congregants for Martin Luther King Day 2022? Well, you know, we, we are working right now on our, on our Martin Luther King Day service. It's going to be virtual. And what I want to tell my congregants is um, don't get weary for the journey. What I, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the beloved community. I want to talk about really how we take everything that we've experienced this may sound crazy, as I wear masks, sometimes when I wear the mask, I'm just thinking about, I'm trying to filter out coronavirus, but in the 60s, they were trying to filter out tear gas. And, and the more that we have to go through this hardship of corona and everything else, that takes me back to a point where we, have to, we can't be weary in the journey. We gotta be vigilant in the journey. And we got to understand that that, that Dr. King would call us, Dr. King would call us to come together with our brothers and sisters of all nationalities, of all colors, of all religions, and, and, and defeat a common enemy. So we can't get weary for the journey. We can't be afraid of our neighbors. When you speak to congregants, what are some of their concerns? What do they pray for to try and make things better? Violence, the end to the violence, the end to the violence. And the end to the violence means also that if you're going to end something, that you've got to put something in this place that's going to be more gratifying than what you left. The violence is in our community is just a microcosm of the breakdown of the services of our communities. 
It's just, I mean, it's, 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 it has made certain city agencies and it's made, it's made certain programs inaccessible to the very people that are in crisis. We have a crisis of, of, of services in our community, of having people to be um, looked at as whole in our community. And also, we also have a hopelessness problem within our community. And it seems that we're only visible as African-Americans when somebody's shot. And when you give people that type of notoriety because somebody got shot, somebody got killed, it's really diminishing the worth of who we are as a community. And we don't need politicians to tell us what's wrong with our community. We know what's wrong with our communities. We need you to help us to come in and fix what's wrong with our communities. Regardless of where people stand on religion, I don't think that anyone could deny that a church could serve as the type of place that keeps part of the fabric together, that can fuel some hope, can make people feel good, help find meaning. The African-American church needs to be the place where we take our stance as being the leaders in our community. Let me say that again. The African-American church needs to reclaim its place. This was a place where you could get food. This was a place where you could get shelter. This was a place where the pastor knew who the movers and shakers were in the community to get you the support that you needed. This was a place who held people accountable. And in some cases, the African-American church has advocated its responsibility to be the center of the community. Tenley Temple is looking to reclaim itself as the Mecca in the middle of this community. And churches and, and civic organizations and nonprofits need to come together so that we can help to be the beacon light that this dark community needs across our city. And in what you could say is a fitting twist, that might be exactly what Reverend Johnson has to do. Channel some of that Dr. Tinley spirit because membership at his church has dropped in recent years and the pandemic isn't helping. Tinley's had to go back to worshiping virtually, and Johnson says he's had to do 40 funerals for congregation members or members of the community who have died from COVID. Some of those people were his old Sunday school teachers. Others were close family friends who watched him grow up in the church and become its leader. Biblically, you know, we, we look at this thing as, as that this is what God is doing right now in this time and this space. And what is God trying to teach us as the church? What is God trying to teach us as the church? And I think that what really what God is saying is you got too reliant on places like this and you were too reliant on the people who you knew to be in the space that I'm going to do a new thing, that I'm going to open up a church in everybody's house. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? I'm going to open up a church in everybody's house. You think that the pandemic is going to crush you. I'm going to use the pandemic for you to be creative and reach people where they are. I got folk in Hawaii and Japan and Great Britain and Detroit and Chicago and Maryland and in other California, Las Vegas, all tuning in and watching us. And I can converse with these people and talk with these people. And God is saying, so how you like the pandemic now? It's worth going back to the beginning of the story. Remember. Before it was Tinley Methodist and it was still East Calvary, the church didn't have much to hang its hat on. Then Charles Tinley came along 
and started spreading the word, going to bars, making connections, Reverend Johnson knows he needs to do the same thing, have a similar mindset, preserve the old, embrace the new, be bold, be creative, get resourceful. Philadelphia is a different world now than what it was when Robert Johnson was a kid running up and down the stairs while the Muller organ played, and Tinley Church has a different place in that world. But Johnson knows the church belongs. He's sure of it. Dr. Tinley's legacy was one of perseverance through toughness and tough times. And through all that he had been through and everything that he has done, he built this. And he built this and he didn't build it so that his name could be on it. He built it so that future generations could have a place where they could worship even in tough times. And if this isn't a tough time, but Dr. Tenley would say if he were alive today, he would just be in that office over there and write down the words, if in my heart I do not yield, I'll overcome someday. And so that's where we are. We're at a state where we need to keep hope alive and keep the dream moving forward. Oh, and about Charles Tinley himself getting a spot on the Music Walk of Fame, we reached out to the Philadelphia Music Alliance, and we're waiting to hear back. Hopefully that happens someday. It seems like he certainly deserves a place. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. Special thanks to Reverend Robert L. Johnson and Minister of Music Theodore Thomas at the Tinley Temple United Methodist Church, and also to our Director of Podcasting at KYW News Radio, Tom Rickard. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Brian Seltzer, and we'll have another episode out soon.